a choice. We started with reshaping my mind, we went to refining my listening, regaining my cutting edge, and today it's rediscovering my purpose, learning from Jesus. I spoke, I, I gotta tell you, last week went longer than you're used to. I don't know if you noticed, I noticed afterwards because I'm looking at the time like, whoa! So I'm trying to pay attention to the clock a little bit better today. But I am, I am spoiled. I have been to third world countries where they don't have lunch waiting at the end of the message. And when you're done at three hours of preaching, they're going, please don't stop. So I'm, I'm used to that. And so I, uh, I do understand we have time constraints, so I'll try to stay within that. But I'm very excited about today. And I'm more excited about what comes after today. So next week... We're going to talk about defense, and after that, we're going to talk about offense. And I, I hope that you make it for those as well. But today, we're going to tackle this as best we can. We've got a lot of material to cover. Hopefully, you have your Bibles ready, and if you're not fast enough, it's okay. It's up behind me, and the message will be recorded and put online if everything works out. First, I want to tell you something that you... Um, may not know already, but one of the greatest rules in studying the Bible is context is king. Remember that anytime you read the Bible. You could get in so much trouble if you don't read things in context. For instance, I could take you to a passage in the Old Testament and I could say to you, do you know the Bible says you are to take your firstborn son to this particular mountain and sacrifice him? Well, you all know that's not directed at you. So you read it in context, and that was for a particular individual in time, and you know the story. There's multiple places in the Bible you can just yank things out of context and get something, something completely different than what God wants. And I want to tell you up front, we're going to discover something if you don't already know it. For where two or more are gathered is not about prayer, it's about biblical confrontation. It includes prayer, but... We hear this all the time. Maybe you've done it, and I'm not trying to knock you for doing it because I'm sure you mean well. But what happens is somebody, you know, let's say the numbers are extra small, and you say, well, you know what? There's a few of us, so we're two or more gathered. The Lord is here. Let me tell you something. I want to be very clear. Uh, we'll get to the Scripture, but I want you to understand, if you are all by yourself, and you're a sold-out follower of Jesus, the Lord is there. You are not alone. Just because you're by yourself does not mean the Lord has abandoned you because you don't have two or three with you. You understand this, right? Yes. So we're going we're gonna to look at the scripture. You'll discover. You'll see what it's about. It's about confrontation. We'll get to that. But there's a bunch of territory to cover, like I said. You remember last week, Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to look quickly. Verses 13 and following. Maybe this was a little biting for you. It was for me. You're the salt of the earth. Remember that passage? It's right up behind me. And, and it also continues in verse 14, you're the light of the world, hide it under a bushel, no, it's all behind me, you can see it, you can read it. And remember, the idea is, we're not supposed to hide it under a bushel, no, but so many of us have gotten into ruts, we've become so complacent, and we are hiding it under a bushel. And that, that felt a little guilty for me to even think that, much less say it. I don't know if you felt it, but I felt convicted. And Jesus was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This follows the Beatitudes. He continues, and he's got a lot of stuff. We're going to learn from Jesus because we want to get this idea 
of how we can rediscover my purpose. I can rediscover my purpose, and you can yours. Verse 17 follows this that we read last week that I just had up on the screen behind me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven. Sorry for repeating that. For I tell you, unless you, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Understand, he's talking about specifically some commandments that he's going to go over. Some people think that when Jesus came, he took away the law and made it a whole lot easier. That is the opposite of what happened. Pay careful attention to what Jesus does here. He goes through the particular commandments he's talking about. In Matthew 5, this is, we're just going to look at little pieces. But if you look in Matthew chapter 5 and you pick up there, right after what I just read, verse 21, you see your subtitle? It says anger. Well, it's really, it's, it starts with talking about murder. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Then he goes on to say, but I tell you, don't even have a hot temper. Don't do that. Don't even be quick to anger. Don't do that. In other words, what he does is he takes us, he's going to take us on a journey, and, and as he preaches, he says, you've heard it said, don't do this. Let me tell you, don't even think it. That's harder, not easier. He didn't come to say, the law, we're throwing it out. He came to say, let me tell you how to live it. This is how you live it. Don't even think it. Wow. I'm going to show you some, some more as we look along. And the next, look at the subtitle there. It says, in some of your Bibles, it says lust or adultery. It says, you said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And he goes on to say, I'm here to tell you, don't even think about it. Because if you think about it, You've done it in your mind. That's harder. In a world where everything is at your fingertips and pornography is rampant, even amongst church people, Jesus says, don't even think it. And if you think that was directed at you, of course it was. It's directed at anybody who feels guilty because you're guilty. He goes on to talk about divorce. You've heard that it was said, anyone who divorces their spouse should, you should have, provide the proper paperwork. Do it legally, do it right. He said, let me tell you, don't do it. Except for the cases of marital unfaithfulness. We can talk about that another time, what that means. But he says, don't do it. Remember in the Old Testament, it's an abomination of God. So don't. In the next one, again, this is verse 33. You've heard that it was said, and this is talking about oaths. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but, you, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't even take an oath at all. 
Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by anything. Don't swear on your mother's grave, whatever it is. Don't do that. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. James says the same thing. It comes from the evil one. Anything beyond that. Here's the problem. If you have to say to someone, look, I mean it this time. What does that actually say? All the rest of the time, unless you couch it with, I mean it this time, you don't mean what you say? I mean, you're constantly a liar, but this one time you're not? See what the Lord says? Don't even make oaths. Don't do that. Don't, don't couch what you say in something extra special. This time it's really true, because that means the rest of the time you can't be trusted. Christians, what you say should be what you mean. You should mean what you say, and you should be trusted. When you say yes, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. And that is where it needs to stay, Christians. People of integrity, let your light shine. Remember all that? See, that's why Jesus was springboarding from there into all of this. He made it harder. And it goes further. You see the subtitle in some of your Bibles. I've got an English Standard Version here. Extra giant print, I think is what, I, what they call it. And I still got to put on my reading glasses. <laughs> love your enemies. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It goes on to say, uh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Basically, we're supposed to love the people that are mean people. And that's not easy. Because people get increasingly mean when it's online. It's easy to be tough online. Tell somebody off. Unfriend them. Whatever. But mean people, they're hard to like. We're supposed to love them. I've had to deal with mean people in churches. People just sometimes, they, they're not at their best. They make mistakes. And sometimes they, can't, they feel like they can't take out on the people they're angry with what they want to, so they take it out on other people. Sometimes it lands on me. Sometimes it lands on you. And we've got to love those people. You'd be shocked. I've seen some of the meanest people mean to me. And I have to really work hard. I, most people who know me would say that I'm always positive. I'm always trying to have a good attitude. I always do have a good attitude. I, I don't, but people would say that about me. And I found myself at times really struggling. I've, I found my myself at times when I, I, someone comes to mind and I almost shudder because I think of their meanness and how many other people they must be hurting. And, and I have to check myself. I have to love those people. And that doesn't just mean think happy thoughts instead of unhappy thoughts about them. That means I have to go out of my way to show them that I love them, no matter how mean they are to me. And here's the shocking part. When I have actually put this into practice and really had to, and I had to get way beyond myself to be nice and loving and genuinely love these people, and, and by that, I could give you so many stories, I won't do that right now, but by that I mean tangible ways that they know they're loved. I've watched mean people who are sour about everything completely turn around. I don't know that my loving them had anything to do with it. Maybe my prayers did. But I love the fact that I've seen very mean, negative people just flip and become positive, encouraging people. I love that. 
It might work for you, too. You might consider it. But then we, we go ahead. That's, we just looked at uh, little pieces of chapter 5. Let's look at Matthew 6, because we don't have a lot of time. We've got to move along quickly. You can tell that's what I'm doing. In Matthew chapter 6, is one of these things, um, I, one of the things I admire about the church here. And I, I'm not taking notes. I'm not like sitting back and go, okay, they're doing this right. They're doing this wrong. I'm not doing that. I, I love my church family here. You're my church family, and I'm, you, you're easy to love. One of the things that you're doing very, very well is you don't pass an offering plate. I love that. My Bible and your Bible teaches, you know, don't give out a compulsion. Well, passing an offering plate makes people feel like giving out a compulsion. Being a preacher of a multi-site church, of churches that have multiple um, services, and in churches that pass offering plates. When I know that I've already written my tithe check, and the church has it, and the offering plate goes in front of me, even as a preacher who knows better, I still feel like I need to put something in there. I feel compelled. But my Bible says don't give out a compulsion. Passing an offering plate, in my opinion, validates the argument that the world has that the church is just out for my money. Why are we passing an offering plate? Teach the people to give, and they will give. You guys are doing it right. You're not passing an offering plate. That's awesome. I love it. But one thing is for sure, and I had a, I had a man confront me. I, I wish I could tell you more about him, but this man, he's, I really admired his Bible knowledge. And he said he had a guy come into the church, and he wanted to raise funds. He had this guy come in, and this guy had everybody say, okay, just church members only. They were gathered, and I'd like people to commit to giving this year. We've got some challenges in front of us, and I want you to commit to give. Anybody want to say what they're going to do? And different leaders were encouraged to speak up. Somebody spoke up and said, well, this year I'm going to increase my offerings. I'm going to give an extra whatever it was. And they publicly made these commitments for everybody to hear. And I, and I told him, I said, that's not biblical. And he goes, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. My Bible and your Bible says when, you're, when, you, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He said, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. He goes, read it again. So let's read it. You mind? Here it is in Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, they got their praise of men, not from God. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And it goes on talking about giving secret. Hey, there you go. See, I was right. Then I read closer. It wasn't talking about giving. It wasn't talking about giving to the Lord's needs. It was talking about giving to the needy. Did you catch that? When you give to the needy? It's not talking about when we give to the church. It's talking about when you give to the needy. What happened in the early church? The early church was greatly, they were in, they were in one heart and mind. Why is this? Because somebody whose name got changed to son of encouragement, Barnabas, stood up and said, I'm going to sell some property and I'm going to give all of it to the church so we can take care of people's needs. And because he did that, he encouraged other people to do that. And it spread. So he got renamed Son of Encouragement, Barnabas. From, from then on, we all, we all know of him as Barnabas. Why? 
because he encouraged the church to publicly say, I'm going to sacrifice this to give to the church. There was, there was no hiding it. It wasn't because they were giving to the needy. They were giving to the church. It's different than giving to the needy. Let me tell you about giving to the needy. It feels good, like we just passed Christmas so you don't have to feel convicted. But when you give to a needy family, I've been there where you give a bunch of gifts to needy families and you stand at the door and you watch the parents cry and the kids are happy. That feels good as the giver. But do I need to do that for me to feel good as the giver? Would it be better if they just discovered the gifts on their front porch and there's a note that says, someone from the church loves you. And they walk into the church with their whole family on a Sunday morning and they look around and they're wondering, I wonder if, I wonder if it was Dan and Marcy. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was the new Jeff and Stephanie. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's that guy Joss that we don't really know that well. I don't know. These people would feel loved by their whole family not knowing who gave. And God gets the glory. God gets the credit. Everybody's happy. And the people who were given the stuff because they're needy never feel like they owe somebody something. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And your Father will bless how you give in secret. If you've never tried giving in secret, if you've never blessed a family and they never know it came from you, you should try that. When you know you've blessed God, that feels better than any feeling you could try to muster up for yourself. So, hey, I was wrong. My friend was right. It's okay for people in the church to say something encouraging about how they're going to give something. That's okay to encourage church members to do that. But when you give to the needy, do it secretly. You'll be blessed. There's more. We don't have a lot of time, but the model prayer, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer is what we call it. One thing I want you to pull out of that as we look through this is Jesus is teaching people, pray for the Lord's will. I want to talk to you someday. We'll spend some time on it. Um, be careful. We, we've got a false doctrine that's very popular out there, and that is that the Lord's will always happens. Whatever, the, whatever, whatever happens, it's the Lord's will. If it's meant to be, it's going to happen. No, that's not true. I... I mess up. Do you mess up? That means I don't do the Lord's will all the time, which means the Lord's will doesn't always happen, which means when I sin, what was meant to be wasn't meant to be. I did the wrong thing. Why would the Lord tell us to pray for the Lord's will if it's just always going to happen? See, the thing is, he gives us free will, and we don't always choose to do the Lord's will. I hope you do more often than you don't. But pray for the Lord's will, because that's what he's in the model prayer. Your will be done. Pray that way. He prayed that way. Remember, remember in the garden? He didn't really want to have to go through with this. He said, but your will be done. Three times he prayed that. So it is great to pray that way. I wish I had time to go through the whole thing, but I don't. Then he talks about fasting. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 6 about fasting. He says, when you fast, there is a presumption that Christians fast. How about that? He talks about laying, uh, storing up your treasures in heaven. I wish I had time to talk about this. I have so much good stuff here. Then he talks about anxiety, stressing, and prioritizing. We talked about that in the first week that I got to preach here and get to meet you. Uh, but let's move on to Matthew chapter 7. He talks about judging. And let's, let's go ahead and look there. It's pretty cool. 
Matthew chapter 7, at the very beginning. <clears throat> Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then he goes on to say, why, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And that's hilarious if you think about it. That is just so funny. Jesus says, you're trying to get a little speck in my eye that I don't even feel. I don't know it's there. But meanwhile, while you're trying to get this speck out of my eye, my, my eye as you're reaching in there trying to get it out for me, let me help you, you got a problem. Your big log is in the way. You can't help me. That's funny. That's a very hilarious visual. First, take care of your own sin that's related to my sin you're trying to confront me with. You've seen a lot of preachers do that. One confronts another and then they get caught doing the same sin. <laughs> that's hypocrisy. That's when he says, you hypocrite, first take, out, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you, do you notice that he's teaching? You've got to take, you've got to clear up that problem that you have before you try to help somebody else with that same problem. I had a couple of guys want to help another guy. This one guy was an alcoholic. They were going to help him out. Problem is, they were alcoholics. And they're all in the church. Do you think it worked very well? No. They all got into trouble. It doesn't work very well. You've got to take care of your related problem before you try to help somebody else, but you have an obligation. Fix your problem. Now you're capable to help others fix theirs. Does that make sense? There you go. Pay careful attention to verse 6. We skip over this. We act like it's not a big deal, but I want you to look at it. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. In the context of not judging other people, we're told this seems kind of odd. Don't throw valuable things before others that will just trample them, that will just totally treat it like it's nothing. Let me, I wish someday maybe we'll have more time to peel this back. Be careful. Scripture does tell us to confess sins to one another. But do you think there's a danger in coming before the whole church and confessing openly your sins if there happen to be people in the church who struggle with gossip? Is that possibly going to cause them to stumble, you think? You might want to read what the Bible says about confessing sins to one another and how that should be done. I don't think it's a good idea to confess to gossip your dirt. If you, can, if you confess to gossips your dirt, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt the gossip. And it might hurt you too. Don't give to dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You might want to read Proverbs, where we are given the wisdom that a good friend keeps a secret. It's related. There's more <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, there's also when you make your request before God, there's in information there. There's the golden rule. I love the golden rule, don't you? Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Uh, it talks about the tree and its fruit. Ouch. You can tell a Christian by the fruit they produce. Okay. So, Christians, can we see the fruit you're producing? Oh, here's the argument. 
let someone else plant the seeds. I can't plant the seeds. I'm not a, I'm not a seed planter. Let somebody else do that. I, I, I'll help with the harvest. Or I plant the seed, they can help with the harvest. You don't really see my fruit. It's happening. No Christians. You can tell Christians by the fruit they produce. You can see it wherever they go. You can see the fruit they produce. That's what Jesus says. It's a good passage. He gets, he gets tougher in, in Matthew chapter 7. He basically says, remember he talks about these people who've done miracles and stuff like that in his name. And he say, on that day, I will say, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. What? They're doing miraculous stuff in his name. And so you're, you're allowing them, you're giving them these supernatural manifestations of your spirit, and yet you say, away from me, I never knew you, you evildoers. What is that about? Because it doesn't give any details except for the fact that you don't know him. And that's the key. You need to be close to Jesus. You have to have a relationship with him. He has to know you. Christians, we, we don't just attend a church, sing songs and pray together. We, we have a developed relationship with our Lord. He knows us. We know him. That's what it's about. And on Judgment Day, that's what it's about. Boy, Jesus makes it tough, doesn't he? But it's good. It's all good. It makes us more genuine. And then he talks about what we talked about already, the solid foundation, build your house on the rock, which is living for Jesus. But I want to focus on the judging part. See that we talked about that earlier. That's the thing that we see throughout Scripture because it's all about grace. We need to be gracious with others if we expect God to be gracious with us. Give grace if you expect grace. I want to talk to you about Martin Luther. This guy you'll see here, not the one that we are celebrating tomorrow. The one we're celebrating tomorrow is worth celebrating. Yes, I know he had some difficult struggles in his life. We all do. But he definitely helped this country and world change, the one that we celebrate tomorrow, Martin Luther King Jr., but I want to talk to you about this guy, the, the one that was Martin Luther King Jr. was named after, Martin Luther. I love this character in history because he changed the world too. Martin Luther had this idea, then it caught on with the Reformation, sola scriptura. And the idea is that God's word is infallible, and it's what we need. That's all we need, really. And I love that. And Martin Luther is one of my favorite Christians. I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be allowed in heaven to have conversations with him, but boy, it would be special if I do. I would love it. I do. I'm, I'm confident that he's there, but he made a mistake. I don't know if you know about it. And, and, I'm, and I don't know how to emphasize it more, but Martin Luther is, is a hero of mine. And I do believe he's a solid Christian that's in heaven, but he made a mistake. He, in a couple of places in the Bible as he was studying, because he was up against a church that, that was doing so many bad things. The church was just so bad. Martin, they were doing things like saying, you know, if you got a little extra cash you could put in the offering plate, you can get the soul of your loved ones that are headed to hell. You can get them to go to heaven. Put some more money in the offering plate. Is that bad or what? He did a whole bunch of, he, he saw a bunch of things the, the Catholic Church was doing. That was the universal church at the time. And he actually wrote down 99 things. Remember the 99 thesis he put on the church in Wittenberg, Germany? Basically, it was the announcement board for the whole community. 
You put, you put announcements there. If somebody's having a, a, a gathering, you put the announcement there. Well, he, he put 99 things that he thought the church was doing wrong, and the Gutenberg Press had recently been invented, and so that got used to spread his 99 arguments against what the church was practicing, and he, <laughs> he this was bold, because John Huss had just been burned at the stake, and everybody knew about it, because he dared challenge the church. And Martin Luther knew he could also be burned at the stake. But he did it, and he was put on trial at a thing called Dieter Worms. <laughs> and in this trial, he, he, he stood there. They told him, you have to recant everything or else face the same thing. It's a heresy trial. He could be burned. And he stood before them after he took some time. He stood before them, and he said, unless convinced by Scripture or reason, I cannot recant. I will not recant. And he changed the course of history. Even the Catholic Church got more biblical after he did that. Yes! You know the Lord loves that. But he made a mistake. Because he was up against a church that was all about, you've got to work your way to heaven, pay your way to heaven, work your way to heaven. He knew it was not all about works. And he read the Bible that said, clearly, in the in Scriptures, it's not about works. But he wrote in the column of his Bible in two places that one is justified by faith alone. And when he got to James chapter 2, verse 24, that says man is justified by what he does and not by faith alone, he spent the rest of his life campaigning to get James out of the Bible. That's a big mistake. Instead of going, saying, whoops, I may have written too much in the column of my Bible, I may have preached too much about faith alone, and you've heard it today, it's called faith-only salvation. There are churches that that's their big thing. Faith only. It's only by faith. Only by faith. Only by faith. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not. I just, read, I just quoted to you James 2.24. You might look it up. It's not by faith alone. In fact, let me, let me show you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is the scripture people use to say it's only by faith. Look at this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then people say, see, faith alone. Excuse me. Back up. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, again, it says it's by grace. Listen again, by grace, through faith, you're saved. If there's any one word you want to pick out of the two, it's grace. My faith can do nothing for me if there's no cross. Does that make sense? It's by grace, through faith. Well, what's the faith part? I, I, we'll, we'll peel this back one of these days in great depth, because I want you to know. But essentially, faith is the access to grace. See, by grace, through faith. That's how you access grace. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do what he says. We'll talk more about that as time goes on. If the Lord wills, we'll get to that. But it's grace. It's a great, great thing. Luke chapter 17, I want to take you there for a minute. We'll get back into Matthew as well. But Luke chapter 17... Jesus says to his disciples, this is verse 1, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And you know what he's doing. He's, he's using children as an analogy. But he's not talking about children. Stay with me. 
Luke chapter 17, verse 3, it continues. Pay attention to yourselves, he emphasizes. In other words, self-evaluate. Don't be thinking about somebody else who needs to hear this. I need to hear this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's the procedure. That's the way it works. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And that, you've got to know this gets old. Some of you have had kids, you've had adult kids, you know, they keep doing the same thing again. They keep coming back and saying, I'm sorry. But then they do it again. Really? Why don't they learn? And Jesus says, you've got to forgive them. That's not easy. The apostles noted that. In verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move. You, you know the rest of it. But why did they say increase our faith? Because he said, you've got you to forgive them even if they ask seven times. It is my contention that this particular lesson was also in Matthew 18. So in other words, when he said, forgive him seven times, he said that in the context of Matthew 18. That's, that is my belief and many other theologians. In Matthew chapter 18, if you don't mind going there, in verses, we'll start with verse 15. Pay careful attention. You remember that part where I said, where two or more gathered is not about prayer, it's about confrontation? Here we are. If your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, 15, Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice how the dignity of the individual who's confronted is protected. You go by yourself. You have a problem with somebody in the church. You don't need to tell somebody else about it. Somebody wrongs you. You don't go tell somebody else about it. You go directly to that individual. Chances are probably that you're right. The chances are probably that you could be wrong. You could confront them and you could find out, oh, I misunderstood. I didn't realize. That's why you go one-on-one. -on -one. You protect their dignity and yours. <clears throat> There's more to it, though. It, it continues. <clears throat> but if he does not listen, take one or two others. Pay careful attention to that. I have it underlined up behind you. Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Pay careful attention. There are those numbers again, two or three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Oh, my goodness. That happened to me. I was preaching in a church in Arkansas, and I said to people, I said, can you imagine how uncomfortable it would be if right there in church, all of a sudden you met, you're having a Bible study or something, and then somebody says, um, I'm with the IRS, after you just told them your name. And as I was greeting people at the, as they left, there was a lady I'd never met, and she said to me, I actually am with the IRS. <laughs> Is there any reason why I, you would be nervous about talking to me? Oh, Matthew was a different kind of tax collector. Back then, they didn't have all the regulations we have today. They could just walk in and take things, demand of you, whatever. And they were tended, people tended to be crooked. 
They were considered to be allies with the Romans. And so Christians, Jews, didn't like tax collectors. And here we are with the guy who's the IRS man of the first century, and Jesus is using him as his disciple, and he says, after you confront them one-on-one, then you take two or three, or one or two with you, so there's two or three witnesses. Um, if they still don't repent, then you expose them to the church. And if they don't repent after that, then you treat them like, like I get treated. Nobody wants to be around me. Stephanie and I were at, went to visit a church in Indianapolis, Indiana. We didn't know what we were getting into. Some other people said, hey, this church is on fire. There's like people showing up from all over, and they have multiple services just crowded in there. So we went. We sat on the front row. It's a good place to sit. Sat on the front row, and it was a wonderful service. They had great music. They had wonderful preaching. And at the end, they said, if you are not members here, you are welcome to leave. But if you would like to say, stay and observe how we handle difficult things, you can stay. So we stayed. Huh, what's about to happen here? They, this man came up, one of the leaders in the church, and he said, the names of a couple of people we're about to say before you are church members here. And um, we, we know that they were confronted one-on-one, -on -one, individually, one-on-one -on -one by the people that they had sinned against, their spouses. And then their spouses got other Christian siblings and confronted with one or two. So they were on the basis of two or three. They still didn't repent. Then they brought it before the church, and we were gracious when it was brought before us as the leaders in the church, we gave them chance after chance after chance to right their wrongs. We, would, we were more gracious than Scripture allows. It was biblically handled, and now we are forced to expose them before the church. Their names are, and they said their names. You know what that felt like to me? I want to be a part of a church like that. It holds people accountable. People have to be real here. These people aren't fake. I think that was what was happening with that church. People want to be a part of something that's tangible, that's real, that, that means something, even if it means I'm going to be exposed if I don't repent when I'm supposed to. Wow! I guarantee you there were people in that room that were thinking, oh my goodness, I better straighten up. That's why God has this here. That's pretty cool. But, but pay attention to the underlying passages. Do you see what it says? It says one or two others, which makes two or three. Two or three witnesses. Move on. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, now that could be applied to any scripture, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. However, he's talking particularly in the context of biblical confrontation. Context is king. Remember, don't yank it. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You see that? It's underlined. Two or three are gathered in my name. There I am. It's not about simple prayer. It's about when you confront somebody, as uncomfortable as it may be, you confront them one-on-one, -on -one, and now I've got to take people with me. This is awkward. This is uncomfortable. But the Lord will bless it if you do it His way. Where two or three are gathered, even if you're asking about somebody that is heartless, somebody that's just never going to change, 
Let me tell you something. I got another story. I don't have a law. I'm not going to get into it because I don't have a lot of time. This also happened in another church. I wasn't there when it happened, but I was there after it happened. One of the most godly men I know, he was an elder in the church. And he was confronted this way. And he, had, and he didn't repent. And he had to be exposed to the whole church. And it is my belief that he is more godly now than he ever was before then. He, he turned around. He, the church had to treat him like a tax collector for a time until he fell flat on his face and realized what he had done and hurt so many people. And now he's closer to Jesus than he ever was. Because see, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Well, even if you ask for somebody that's that heartless, they could come around. Do it his way. That's the way to do it. And I told you, it's not about simple prayer. It's about confrontation. I want to move on. But I believe this is in the context when Luke said, you've got to forgive them. Even if they ask you seven times and they repent, you know, forgive them. Wow. And the, and the apostles go, oh, increase our faith. Oh, that's a lot. You know the feeling. Okay, so look at this. I believe that happened in this context. Look at verse 21. I'm not skipping anything. Then Peter came up to the Lord. And this is an indication that he did it privately. And said, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, like you said. I got it. That's, that's, that's it. That's, that the, is that where I cut it off? Once I've done it seven times, then I can be done with them. Just done. Put them in the past. Don't need that negativity in my life. Is that, what, is that it, Lord? Seven? In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, there's some contention as to what this means. It could be translated 77 times or 70 times seven. You can pick. Pick, pick the small one. Let's say 77. That's a lot. Think about it. Are you kidding me? I've got to, re I've got to if they, ask, they repent and they ask for forgiveness, I've got to repent. I've got to forgive them 77 times. That, you know, remember the apostles were like, seven times, oh, increase our faith. 77 times? That's a lot. Is it? Think about this. What do you want your cutoff number to be for Jesus? What would you like to make? Make a deal with him right now. Would you like to say, Lord, when I mess up 77 times, cut me off. No, I think I want that 70 times seven. What's that number? That's bigger, right? Can I have that one? Well, I want more. And by the way, in the Bible, you see multiple times the number seven. And almost universally, when it's used, it's figuratively speaking, the number of completion. You forgive that person as much as they need to be forgiven. Yes, Lord, that's what I want from you. I, please forgive me as much as I need. I want your grace. Did we not read earlier how you judge is how you're going to be judged? You think about forgiving other people seven times. Oh, that's a lot. Increase my faith. Seventy-seven? What? That's too much. And you want to talk about 70 times seven? I don't know how to do that. But then you flip it. Jesus, my cutoff number is, oh no, just the complete number, whatever it takes. Just keep forgiving me. I need it. I, I mess up a lot. 
So does your neighbor. So does your brother. So does your sister. So so does everybody else. I want his grace, don't you? So if I'm gracious, I'm not talking about being run over. We don't want to enable people. That's another subject. You can't do that. That's a factor. Think about it. But you got to be gracious. If you want grace, give grace. It takes us back to the golden rule, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Okay, Jeff, you started off, you said, my purpose. When are you going to get to that? Oh, let's do that. Can we fast forward? Matthew chapter 28, Jesus clearly tells us. <laughs> Jesus came to them, this is verse 18, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There you have it. He starts off with, I am the boss of you, the universe, and everything else. That's what he says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I am the boss. I'm your boss. And everything else is boss. So in other words, you better listen to what I have to say, Christians. Okay, it's Jesus. We're going to listen. And then he says, go therefore. Anytime you see the therefore, you should ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because he just said, I'm the boss of you and everything else. Okay, so he says, go therefore and make disciples. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. The Greek says it this way. I wanted to be clear. Look what it says. You are going to make disciples. That's actually literally what it says. I'm the boss of you and everything else. So you're going to make disciples. Ah, Pastor, you don't understand. I'm shy. Or, you understand, I'm not good with my words. You, you could put them together. You're a word person. You could do that. That's not for me. You know, I'm not a people person. I'd rather play video games. I'd rather be alone. <laughs> you, remember, you remember when uh, the spies were sent in to the promised land? You remember that? And, 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 and they were told, there were 12 spies sent in, and they were told, Go look at what the Lord's given you. Come back with a report. But instead, ten people came back whining. Ah, we can't have it. Can't have it. They got giants there. It's good and all, but we can't. We're going to die. It'd be better if we died under Pharaoh than this. Remember that? And what happened? Well, the Lord gave them exactly what they said. You can't have it. Forty years, you're going to wander. Joshua and Caleb, they get to go in because they came back and go, Oh, it's good. Let's go do this. I want to be like Joshua and Caleb. I'm afraid I might have been like those others. I hope not. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the boss of you and everything else. So you're going to make disciples. Don't whine about it. Or he'll give you what you want. You won't be productive. You won't be producing fruit because you don't think you can. Don't do that. Be like Joshua and Caleb. He's the boss. He's got some blessings for you. Do what he says. Okay. We're running out of time. I've got to run through five things quickly. Rediscovering my purpose. What have we learned? It's a few things that we learned from Jesus. First of all, self-evaluate. I've got to look at myself. How can I do better? I know I can do better, Lord. Second, be genuine. Live for Him. That's your faith. That's the access into the grave. 
grace. You live for him. Demonstrate your faith by your life. That's your access into grace. Don't forget that. Third, stay out of God's way. <laughs> Don't be a stumbling block to the little ones. He's not talking about children. He's talking about people that are growing in their faith. People that are newbies in Christianity. It's not okay just because you let a cuss word slip out every now and then and you happen to be around a new Christian and you, and you just tell them, well, it's okay, everybody just does this. It's all right. No, it's not. My Bible and your Bible says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It also says, rid yourself of filthy language. It's not okay, Christians. We are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We don't act like everybody else. It's not okay to take a new Christian and show them how to be mediocre. That's not okay. It'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause a new one to stumble. Don't do that. Get out of God's way. Let him do his thing. Don't block him. Fourth, be gracious and forgiving. You want grace? Give grace. You want forgiveness? Give forgiveness. Fifth, regenerate. He is the boss of you and everything else. So you're going to make disciples. It's the way it is. It's the way it has to be. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us this time to meet together and learn some things from you. Oh, Lord, you are so good. And your word is so powerful and it's so useful. Thank you. Help us, Lord. We all struggle. You know us, Lord. You know that we need your help and you know where our struggles are. And right now in the middle of this prayer, there are some of us that are convicted. We've been doing some self-evaluating. You know we need to change. Lord, there are some of us in this prayer that aren't self-evaluating. Lord, by your Spirit, convict them. Lord, there are people in our lives that need to know you, need to know you better. Lord, we want to be your instruments. We want to produce fruit. Even though we're in the middle of all this COVID stuff, we know that you can bless us as we try to bless you. So we ask that you place your hands on us, guide us, move us in your direction. In Jesus' name, amen.